This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. In 1998, I was a junior at Grant County High School in Grant County, Kentucky. And it wasn't uh, only the year before I graduated. Uh, It wasn't only the year before we moved into a brand new high school, but it was also the year that I took physics class with a guy named Mr. Israel. Not Israel, but Israel. Um, and, you know, I didn't excel in that class. I didn't. Uh, but it's the one time that in my life that I actually enjoyed a little bit of math that we had to do. And this entire year was built around several projects. Um, and one of them was, like, designing a cooler uh, to keep things cool out of, like, toothpicks and cardboard or something like that. We had to use physics to, to do this. The competition was to see who would uh, keep drinks coolest the longest but um, another was building this wind-up car all out of like specified and limited materials but the best one was designing a Rube Goldberg machine and that was like the end of the year project most of you probably know what a Rube Goldberg machine is who knows what a Rube Goldberg machine is no oh my gosh um, all right, so if you don't, if you don't know what a Rube Goldberg, just think of that old uh, board game, you know, Mousetrap. Anybody remember Mousetrap? Yes? Some of you remember Mousetrap. All right, the idea, man, the idea, um, struggling to connect here. Come on now. Um, the, the idea is that a, a human, right, initiates the first action and from there uh, creates a machine that within a limited number of steps accomplishes some menial task. So our task was to create a machine that popped the top on a pop can, right? And so uh, Rube Goldberg, the guy after whom these projects are named, he developed this idea of Rube Goldberg machines in the wake of the technology revolution when he saw that humans uh, often created devices to accomplish really simple tasks for them. And actually, the device has often made the job sometimes more difficult or more time-consuming. So the Rube Goldberg projects were kind of making fun of the technology revolution. For instance, right, we can spend hours and weeks and months creating this machine that pops the top on a pop can, when in reality it takes us about a second to do it, right? So other than the ingenuity and creativity of Rube Goldberg machines, Something that's always fascinated me about them is the chain reaction that happens. It's like a row of dominoes, right? But with with different objects. The first human action sets off this whole chain of reactions. And the first action, it causes one thing to go, which causes the next thing to go, and it causes the next to go, and so on and so on. And as you watch these movements lead from one to the next, right, it's kind of astonishing because you're able to like peer into the machine that you've created, the inner workings. You're able to sort of witness the complexity of energy exchange. And when you get to the end and you see that final move, the pop 
can opening or whatever, you're left just standing there reflecting on like how one act caused that all and how it was kind of pointless, right? Um, and so as I was mulling over Genesis 24 this week, I, I couldn't shake this idea because that's what Genesis 24 is. And I, I hate to say it, but when I, I think when most people read this chapter, Genesis 24, they completely miss the point. It's kind of bold to say that, but I'm going to say it. Um, I think people get this chapter wrong, largely. Most people think that Genesis 24 is this chapter about an arranged wedding that ends with a happy marriage, Rebecca and Isaac. No. It's not. It's not about that. And as, as I read Genesis, I'm mystified, right? Time and time again at the propensity to sort of read it with just such happy glasses or rose-colored glasses on. This is not a happy story, Genesis. It's not a happy story. It's not a feel-good story. It's not a happy ending rom-com, right? It's a story of heartbreak. Genesis is a story of heartache, the soundtrack of Genesis would not be Whitney Houston's I will always love you. It would not be that, right? It would be more like Billy Ray Cyrus's Don't Tell My Heart, My Achy Break. You know that song. Come on, connect with me. Yes, you, I'm sure you know. But t- today's passage, right, which focuses on Abraham's servant finding a wife for Isaac, it is a, disto- it is a story of deceit. Deceit at its finest, in fact. Um, and Abraham, his servant, pulls this massive sleight of hand trick. And the result is this monster-sized, emotional Rube Goldberg machine. An emotional Rube Goldberg machine. Because the servant's actions right, set off a chain reaction. The, the servant's reactions affect everyone that he comes into contact with. Even God. His actions affect God. Um, and other than Rebecca, whom today we're just going to call her Becky, okay? Um, Rebecca, we're going to affectionately call her Becky. Other than Rebecca or Becky, it's Isaac who bears the brunt of this servant's decision and decisions. He'll pay. Isaac will end up paying for another man's actions, He'll have to live with the fallout and with the hurt that he himself never, ever sought to cause. He'll be resigned to a life with a wife whom his dad's servant tricked. And it's almost, right, as if Abraham on his way out of life, on his way to his deathbed, sort of sticks it to Isaac just one last time, even if he didn't mean to. I mean, maybe Abraham was well-intentioned, but maybe not. We don't know for sure. He, he could have been doing what he was, he spent his lifetime doing, seeking to just establish and ensure his own legacy. Nevertheless, Isaac, Isaac can sing with Billy Ray at the end of it all, but don't tell my heart my achy, breaky heart. Just don't think it understand. And if you tell my heart my achy, breaky heart, he might blow up and kill this man. Woo! Right? So for the record... <laughs> Um, I can't believe I'm reciting Billy Ray Cyrus in a sermon. Um, I hope you don't like lose respect for me over that. Um, so we're going to turn to our focal passage today, which is Genesis 24, um, <laughs> which is the longest chapter in Genesis. This is the longest chapter in all of Genesis. 
So you, you, you got to hang with me today, like put on your like endurance caps or whatever it is. Hang with me today because it's really detailed. It, it, it actually tells the same story a few times. Okay, uh, Abraham tells his servant, maybe it's that guy Eleazar we encountered earlier in Genesis, but he tells him what to do. And then the narrator tells us the story, and then there's some reflection on the story. So there's a bit of redundancy and repetition. But it's in the details of the repetition that we actually find out what the story is trying to tell us. And if we just rush over the repetition, we're going to miss it. And that's why I think people have misunderstood this chapter. It's not a happy ending love story. It's more like a sad country song. Right? There's no beer, there's no dying dog, there's no tractor and no hoedown, but there's definitely some achy breaky going on here. Um, and you know, initially, I was thinking that, uh, I was trying to think of a way to get through all the chapters, 67 verses, right? Um, can I just tell half the story and say, oh, we, they tell it again? Uh, but no, I can't do that, because if I do that, then Skipping over the details makes us misunderstand the story. So to get to the point, we have to go through the whole thing because there are these details, these minor details that change, and those are the clue, the key to understanding what's being said here. So we've got to pay really close attention because one action sets off like a, in a Rube Goldberg fashion, okay? So let's turn to the text here. We're just going to start with the first one. It begins this way. Abraham was old. And then it tells us again, he was well advanced in age. So it's like saying he's like old, old, right? And um, Adonai had blessed Abraham in all things. He was old, old. And the text says it twice, emphasize it in different ways. But look at the last bit. Adonai had blessed Abraham in all things. Man, I struggle with that this week. <laughs> Because you all who have been following this story from the start with Abraham, right? You know of all the decisions, the horrible decisions he's made. I have a tough time seeing this, that the Lord has blessed Abraham in all he's done. Like, really? Uh, he's lost every key relationship in his life. He's got nothing to his name but a cave, right? He's got no relationships except this hired servant a hired hand. Now, honestly, it feels like the end of this verse belongs in chapter 25, right around verse 6 or 7, right before Abraham dies. But it's here, and I, I, I'm not exactly sure why. Um, maybe we can take some solace in the fact that, look, uh, God still longs to bless like super screwed up people like Abraham. And <laughs> uh, in every way, in all things, right? Perhaps there's some grace to be found there, right? Um, and so even as we round the bin into the final home stretch of our lives, look, look God still longs to be present and, and bless, even as we turn that corner. Right, let, let's, let's keep reading here. Abraham said to his servants, the elder of his house, who ruled over all he had, please put your hand under my thigh. Now, don't miss what's going on here. Again, it may be Eliezer. We don't get a name in the whole chapter. So I, I wonder why he's nameless. Why doesn't the servant get a name here? Has If it is Eliezer from earlier, a few chapters, did he lose status? Like why? Is, is it a different person? 
Why isn't this person named? But this dude makes an oath with Abraham. And it's, it's not putting his hand under his thigh. Like, think of it like chicken, chicken, chicken. Right? It, it's moving up. It's probably the midsection, right? Um, the nether regions of Abraham. And that, you know, actually, it's probably where we get this saying from. You got them by the you-know-whats, right? Um, there's a nice scriptural saying for you on Sunday morning. But that, that's how the oath goes. He's got them by the, um, yeah. So, and then it continues. I'll make Abraham, I'll make you swear by Adonai, right? The God of the sky and the God of the land that you shall not take a woman concerning my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But to my land and to my relatives, you will go and take a woman concerning my son Isaac. And so you can see a couple important things here. You notice it begins with a very specific designation. Abraham calls him God Adonai, the God of the sky and the land. In other words, the God of everything. Okay, That's going to be important later. That's one of the details I want you to hang on to. And then he tells the servant, servant, you need to leave this land we're in, Canaan, and go back to my hometown, Ur. You remember, back at the beginning of the story, Ur is his hometown. And I want you to go back to my hometown and to my people and find a wife there for my son, Isaac. Now, just like his other son, Ishmael, married an Egyptian, Abraham wants his Israelite son, Isaac, to marry an Israelite, an Urite, Right, one from his own line. So let's keep going with the story. We're going to move quickly here. The servant said to him, perhaps this woman, when I find her, will not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I bring your son, Isaac, again to the land from which you came? That is Ur. Should I take Isaac back to Ur if she doesn't want to come back here? And Abraham said to him, take care not to bring my son there again. And so as soon as the oath is offered, the servant starts considering some loopholes exceptions to the rule, potential unforeseen possibilities. Maybe his life depended on getting it right. I don't know. But the reality is, is we humans are so prone to this kind of thing, aren't we? Aren't we? Finding loopholes? Aren't we prone to this? We, we're discussing house rules this week at our family, at our house. And and, and um, there it was. We brought up a house rule. And um, boy, the kids' propensities to finding loopholes. Oh my gosh. Well, what about this? What if this happens? Uh, and, you know, how will you know if we don't do this or if we do this? <laughs> and, and it keeps going on. So I get this because sometimes, right, we just need clarification so we can get things done the right way, but sometimes not so much. We're in search of how much wiggle room we have, what we can get away with. And so we notice Abraham's response, hey, don't take my boy back there. Don't take my boy back there. Essentially, look, I left there for a reason. It's behind me. I'm done with it. You can go back. Not me. Not my son. Ur is behind us. Mm. I was wondering if this sort of preventative act is one that as Abraham ages, man, he finally gets it right. He does something right for Isaac, maybe. He doesn't want his son to go back there and to be like sucked in. Or maybe not. I mean, maybe if it's that unsafe for Abraham to go back there or for Isaac to go back there, then why seek a woman from there? <laughs> I mean, won't she be a byproduct of that culture or that society? 
How can that possibly be good for Isaac? Might he even be robbing Isaac of the opportunity to find the woman for himself? Robbing Isaac of that chance encounter at the well of his own? It's difficult to know. Uh, but I think we can read the story either way. We're going to continue reading. Um, and Abraham, he continues, again, describing God, and he says, Adonai, the God of the sky, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, I will give this land to your offspring. He, he himself will send his agent before you, and you shall take a wife for my son. For, I mean, he's still holding Abraham in the midsection all of this time. Kind of weird. Um, he will, <laughs> and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Uh, the dude's probably like, come on, finish the oath already, right? Uh, but if the woman isn't willing to follow you, then you shall be clear from this oath to me. Only you should not bring my son there again. And so there we get it. He doesn't want Isaac to go back there. So the servant, here he goes, puts his hand under the thigh, not really, of Abraham, his master, swore to him concerning this matter. The servant uh, took ten of his master's camels, Abraham's camels, and departed, having a variety of good things of his masters with him. He arose and went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. So this is the first telling of the story, y'all. Uh, we get to hear at least one more time, maybe a couple, but don't overlook the fact here again that Abraham calls God God of the sky. God of the heavens. It's the same word in Hebrew. But pay attention to what happens here. When Abraham responds to the servant's what if scenario, he essentially, watch what Abraham does. He puts all of the weight of it on God. Did you catch that? Bro, just do what I said, right? If this is what God wants, then let God take care of it, right? It's as if Abraham is just gassed. Uh, he's traveled all over the place for God in his life. He's done so much for God. He's given up a lot for God. He's screwed up a lot. He's just wiped out, exhausted. And at this point, he's just like, dude, I just can't. Like, I give up. It's in God's hands, right? If God doesn't come through for you on this trip, it is what it is, right? It's on him. I can't do anything about it, bro, right? And so... I'm wondering, like, has Abraham finally learned his lesson? Get out of God's way. <laughs> or is he just abdicating responsibility? Which one is it? Like, it's tough to say. It's tough to say. The story can be read either way. Um, and so the, the servant, he takes the oath. He grabs Abraham where no man should grab another man, and he makes an agreement. Thank God for handshakes, right? Um, and then he takes, he takes ten of Abraham. <laughs> You like that one? He takes 10 of Abraham's camels and he takes a bunch of other goods and he leaves with them and he goes back to the city of Nahor in Ur. And the story continues. This is going to be what may be the boldest act in all of Genesis so far. It's a human putting God to the test. Look at this. He made the camels. This is the, the servant. They've arrived at the city uh, in Ur, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time that women go out to draw water. This is nowhere in the, the playbook. Think back. Think back to everything we just read. Right? This seems like a break from the plan. Right? If it were a Rube Goldberg machine, it's as if the servant has added in his own step or a few extra steps to the machine now. Instead of just sticking to the plan, he modifies the plan. And it's the first modification 
which Abraham mentioned nowhere to do this. And it, this, this right here, guys, this is the catalyst for everything that follows in the rest of this story. It's a myriad of problems that in time, they're going to emerge in Rebekah's life and in Isaac's life and the life of Abraham's family. Many have gone so far as to accuse the servant here of divination or seeking omens or the like. He's praying out loud so as to be recognized. Noticed by the women that he sees approaching the well. Can you relate? Can you relate? I used to have this, uh, this friend in high school and in subsequent years in his life, perhaps even to this day, I don't know, I don't talk to him anymore, but he would do this sort of thing. He would use God, and he would use God language to make himself seem like spiritually mature to get noticed by females. <laughs> and sometimes they fell for it, unfortunately. It was a pitiful ruse, and I genuinely think that's what's happening here. This was nowhere in part of the plan. He's added it. Listen to his prayer. He's, he's saying this aloud. He says, Adonai, as the women are coming toward him, Oh, Adonai, God of my master, Abraham, please give me success today and show loyalty to my master, Abraham. Here I am, standing by the spring of water. <laughs> the daughters of the men are, uh, uh, the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let it happen. Let it happen that the young lady to whom I will say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, then she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one that you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown loyalty to my master. And before he finished speaking, right, he saw them coming, so he timed it perfectly. Before he finished speaking, sure enough, the text says, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother with her pitcher on her shoulder. Notice that God doesn't, uh, notice that he doesn't call God his God here. He's distancing, he's Adonai, the God of Abraham, his master. And I think that that lends, right, credence to the disingenuousness of this all, right? Um, don't miss the fact, too, that in verse 13, he starts with a, here I am. You know the Hebrew word, hineni, right? Um, in other words, he's speaking in the first person, but then he's going to switch to third person and back to first person and back to third person. And he does that strategically. And so if you can just imagine, right, walking by and overhearing this guy praying aloud, it shouldn't be too hard to see how he's purposefully blurring the lines. God, God of Abraham, it's me. <laughs> Let, let the things happen, God of Abraham, that, that I'm requesting. Send a woman, God, uh, for your servant, Isaac. You see what I mean? <laughs> Notice that throughout the story, this guy is called Abraham's what? Servant. And even in the prayer, he identifies himself as Abraham's servant. He is the servant. He's a servant on a mission. And so when he prays that God would send a suitable woman for the servant, a prayer he says right as Becky walks by, she'd certainly think he was praying for himself. You see. And so what do you suppose she thought his name was? Isaac. 
She thinks that he's Isaac and he purposely blurs the lines between himself and Isaac. And he leads this woman, Becky, to believe that he is Isaac. That's what I'm trying to convince you of. He leads her to believe that he is Abraham's servant named Isaac. He's deceiving Becky. And it will soon deceive Becky's family. He arrives in this new town. He appears to be a rich young suitor, the servant of a wealthy mass. He's got valuables, jewelry even, as we'll learn just in a minute. Ten camels, that's a lot. And he's gone to the place in town where all the women meet every evening. The town well, a real ladies' man. Uh, They know why he's there to find a woman, and he knows why he's there to find a woman, but they don't know that he's there to find a woman for someone else, and he doesn't tell them. Only he knows that, and only we as the readers know that right now, and it's a super important detail because the entire story hinges on this. He never divulges this information. In fact, he passes himself off as Isaac here. Becky thinks that's his name. And only later is Becky going to find out that, nope, that, that's not the case. This isn't Isaac. The text's going to make that clear. So let's keep reading. This young lady was very beautiful to look at, a virgin. No man had known her. She went down to the spring, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a drink, a little water from your pitcher. And she said, drink, my lord. She hurried and let down her pitcher on her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they've finished drinking. And she hurried and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again to the well to draw and drew for all his camels. And the man gazed at her silently to know whether Adonai had made his journey successful or not. And so Becky overheard his prayer. She knew his plan. He knew his plan. It was as if they're in cahoots now because she had heard the prayer. They had never met before. And his plan seems to go off without a hitch. But in the end, look at this last bit. Look at that. In the end, he's not sure whether this is of God or not. Of course he didn't know whether this was of God. God never told him to do this. This was never part of what God told Abraham either. And if he didn't consider Abraham's God his own God, how in the world would he know? Do you ever feel like that? Have you ever been in a place where you wonder... Uh, whether what's transpired is of God or is it merely of your own hoping or your own wanting or your own wishing? Have you ever found it difficult to hear a clear word from God because of that? Have you ever resorted to asking for signs from God? Ever put God to the test? Like put him on the spot. Try to force his hand. I've done it a lot of times in my own life, and I loathe myself every time afterward. It feels like, ugh, like, like yucky and icky. Yeah? Come on, you got to be able to relate to me on this. Nothing about that feels right. And yet somehow, like a dog making its way back to vomit, I've made my way back to doing it time and time again. I'm a preacher. I'm a devout student of Scripture. But I'll be straight up with you today like I am every Sunday. I I do this kind of stuff. I do this kind of stuff. I get in my own way. I get in my own head. And I challenge God and I put God to the test. And what I know is that it's unhealthy and it's an abuse of my faith. It's theological malpractice. The worst, though, is at the end, if the outcome is what I had hoped for, 
I can find myself justifying my ways, my cunning, right? And even result in getting this like spiritual big head about it. And what I've realized is that spiritual discernment can be easy, but it can also be easily manipulated. And we have to be careful not to land in those like sinkholes or pitfalls, spiritual quicksands, if you will. Mm. So I want to continue, but I want you to notice what happens next. That this servant, he, he's waiting, look, he, he wanted to know, right? He's waiting silently whether God, Adonai had made this successful or not. Notice, 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 notice. The servant doesn't get an answer from God. And so what does he do? He continues taking things into his own hands, matters into his own hands. His initial lie, right? Passing himself off as a worshiper of Abraham's God, his second lie, passing himself off as Abraham's son and servant Isaac. And you know that once you, you tell a lie, you've got to keep the act up, right? So that you're not found out. That's exactly what he does here. One lie to another to another. Lies don't really exist in isolation. Look at this. When the camels uh, had finished drinking, the man took a ring of gold weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her hands weighing ten shekels of gold and said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room in your father's house for us to stay the night? <laughs> a couple of things here. Notice the order of events. This is going to be really important in just a minute. First, he gives her jewelry. And second, he asks whose daughter she is. I promise that's going to be important in just a minute, um, that order of events. The second thing is he asks a super suggestive and perhaps flirtatious question. Is there room in your father's house for us to stay the night? Wait, us? Us? Like him and Becky? Or, or him and his servants? A double meaning? Um, is there room for us? At this point, Becky must have been flattered by his wooing. But by any stretch of the imagination, this is a very potent starting point. It's an inappropriate ancient pickup line. And I was thinking about adding some funny pickup lines here, but I'll spare you this morning. She thinks he's Isaac, Abraham's servant, that he's rich, and that he's seeking her as his own wife. And like the Rube Goldberg machine, right, this unnamed servant keeps adding steps into the machine to make it more and more complex and complicated. And these steps are going to bear ruinous fruit later on. Look, it says, she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she said moreover to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge in. The man bowed his head and bowed to Adonai, and he said, Blessed be Adonai, the God of my master Abraham, not my God, who has not forsaken his loyalty and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, Adonai has led me on the way to the house of my master's brothers. The young lady ran and told her mother's house about these words, and so she tells her identity to him and confirms what we learned at the end of Genesis 22. This is the Becky of Abraham's family. And she also confirms, yeah, there's room. There's room. It doesn't say for us. And she says there's room. Because if she'd said for us, then probably that would have been appropriate for a woman to do. But she picked up on his pickup line, I think, and that was enough. And the servant, acting as if he's praying genuinely again, 
was kind of faking it. And the text makes clear that he's still distancing himself from God. This is not his God. It's always Abraham's God. And look what the text does next. He says, he, he plays the God card. He says all of this. Everything that's just happened, Becky, was by God's doing. God led me here. God made me do this. Now you can read this as if he's being honest with her. But to do so, I think, is to ignore what the story is really telling us. Do you remember just a few verses earlier, the text said that he, he was waiting to see if this was from God. And nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing from God. But what does he do? He goes ahead and he attributes his little test that he devised, that he made up to God. He's using God, the God card, to manipulate the situation and to get what he wants. How can Becky refute what God wants? This man is rich. Surely it's a sign that God, the God of Abraham is on his side and what he's saying is true. His wealth and status are proof. So she runs and tells her mom and the text says she told her older brother Laban, Becky, Rebecca had a brother and his name was Laban. And Laban ran to the man outside to the spring and when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's hands and when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister saying, this is what the man said to me, he came to the man. There he was standing by the camels by the spring. And you notice that, that she doesn't actually tell Laban the story, just her mom. Laban actually hears part of the story. He sees that she's decked out in jewelry that she didn't have before. And he's got to seize the moment. And the text continues. He says, come in, blessed one of Adonai. Why do you stand outside? For I myself have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And the man came into the house and he unloaded the camels and he gave straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with them. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've spoken my message. And Laban said, speak. And so now we're going to get the second telling of the story and here we go. He said, I am Abraham's servant. <laughs> you notice he describes himself again as Abraham's servant. Servant. Earlier, he had used the name Isaac to describe Abraham's servant. He's continuing this ruse, right? That he's Isaac when he's really not. And so he continues, and as he does, those listening to him think that because he's Abraham's son, he's also Abraham's inheritor. He's got all this wealth, this jewelry and camels with... You pay close attention, especially to the places where he calls Abraham my master. It's significant because it makes listeners think that he is the servant, Isaac. Adonai has blessed my master greatly. He's become great. Adonai has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys. He's rich. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. Notice that. He has given all that he has to him, implying me, right? Um, and so this is just a blatant lie, a blatant lie, outright lie here. Abraham has not yet given Isaac everything. If you flip over to Genesis 25, that actually doesn't come until there. Genesis 25.5 is where he says he gives Isaac everything. So this guy is digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper, and he's passing himself off as Isaac. And Becky is over the moon about this guy. He's wooed her like she's never been wooed at the well before. 
And he's devised a plan not of God to get her attention. And he's devised a way to keep this not of God plan going to keep her and her family falling for it. And look how it continues. My master made me swear saying, you shall not take a wife concerning my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. But you shall go to my father's house into my family and take a wife concerning my son. And I said to my master, perhaps this woman will not follow me. And so he's playing this double agent, right? He sort of leaves out Abraham's notice. He leaves out, remember how the story started. Abraham described God as the, the God of the heavens and of the land and again, and the God of, he doesn't say that of the God. He leaves that out. It's as if Abraham's God, the Lord of everything, has become shrunken now to this sort of local family God. And the point is this, is that he doesn't quote Abraham and the fool. He leaves out details as soon as he starts. And so, so does he as he continues. Look what he says. He says, Adonai, he said to me, Adonai before whom I walk will send his agent with you and will make your way succeed. You shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. We're hearing the story again. And then you'll be clear from my oath when you come to my family. If they don't give her to you, you shall be clear from my curse. What? You see this? Abraham never, ever used the word curse. But the servant introduces it into the story here. Why? In an effort to, in to strike fear into Becky's family so that they'll comply. He sets them up perfectly. <laughs> the deity of Abraham has planned this. right? Becky and Becky's family, if you don't oblige, he's going to curse you. Abraham never said such a thing. So it's going deeper and deeper. He's adding things to Abraham's story. Ever had somebody add things to your own story, put words into your mouth? That's what's going on here. The level of the complexity of this emotional Rube Goldberg machine is just increasing, increasing. He keeps changing the story up and he says, look at this blatant lie right here. I came today to the spring and said, Adonai, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are indeed making my way succeed in which I go, here I am, standing by the spring of water, let it happen that the girl who comes out to draw, to whom I will say, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And then she tells me, drink, and I'll also draw for your camels. Let her be the woman who Adonai has appointed concerning my master's son. This is, this is him passing himself off as Isaac. And I mean... It, this is a cover-up. It's a deceit, right? It's Becky Gate. That's what this is. You've heard of Watergate and Deflate Gate and Pizza Gate. This is Becky Gate. Becky Gate. It's a blatant act of deceit in order to take advantage, to get ahead, to cover up. Only the servant knows better right now. And us, listening to the story. That's how he slants the story right here. Look, he says, Before I had finished speaking in my heart, sure enough, Rebecca came out with her pitcher on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew and I said to her, please let me drink. And she hurried and let down her pitcher from her shoulder and said, drink and I'll also give your camels a drink. And so I drank and she also gave the camels a drink. And I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son who milk boards him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her hands. Are you following? Are you seeing what's happening here? 
I bowed my head and worshipped Adonai and blessed Adonai, the God of my master Abraham, who'd led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter for his son. He's lying. He's lying. He told the events out of order. You see this. He said, that's why I told you the detail was going to be important. He says that he asked her first whose daughter she was and then gave her jewelry. What happened really? The opposite. He gave her jewelry first to suck her in, to woo her, to assert his status, and then only later asked her who's died. He's straight up lying. He's lying. You think back to the story and what's missing. He conveniently leaving out the part two where, where he says, hey, is there room for us? He doesn't bring that up here. Doesn't bring it up. He leaves that out. Right? That sort of jock pickup line. Leaves it out. I, I wish almost that she would have ratted him out as he was like retelling this story in front of her family. But she doesn't. And he simply skips this part and he says, Now, if you'll show loyalty and faithfulness to my master, tell me. If not, tell me that I'm a face toward the right or toward the left. And so he's saying, Look, are you going to obey Abraham's God or not? This guy's slick. I wonder if you've ever met people like this. Uh, people, I mean, people try to tell you that, that God's telling them, God told me to tell you this. Like God, have you ever met people like this? They try to tell you that God's telling them something about you, but God never told you. <laughs> That's odd. It's really odd, isn't it? God would tell somebody else about you, but not come and tell you? Um, that, that God would speak to other people about you, but not you? People can use this sort of thing, right, to, to make themselves look super spiritual and try to get some spiritual authority over you. I mean, ever seen pastors like this? Come on, come on. Ever see pastors like this? Churches, ministers, they're all over. <laughs> all over the place. Here's the thing, they can be super Super hard to spot sometimes. The whole thing about, you know, sheep and wolves closing, clothing. But this wolf, the servant, he's making headway toward his goal. Look at how Laban replies. He says, And Laban and Bethuel answered, The matter has gone out from Adonai. We're unable to speak to you whether it's bad or good. So here is Rebecca for you. Take her and go and let her become the wife concerning your master's son. That is you as Adonai has spoken. So basically Laban, in speaking for his family, is admitting, look, we haven't heard a word from God about this, from your Abraham's God. And so we don't know. We can't judge whether it's bad or good. But crap, right? We don't want him to curse us. We don't want this God to curse us. So she's all yours, right? Take her. Let her become your wife, your master's son. Uh, the wife of your master's son, as Adonai has said, and so he's taking the bait. You know, a lot of people have taken the bait. They've taken a hook, line, and sinker from people. People who have told others, look, God told me to tell you about this. God gifted me to do this or some crap like that. And you're in a state of awe, in a state of like respect for them. And they become blinded to the reality of what really is. Come on. You ever been there? Ah, oh, it's a difficult it's a difficult place to be in, right? Um, 
You ever see a loved one getting taken advantage of by somebody who's claiming to be religious or have spiritual authority? A friend? You can't say anything to them. They will not hear you. <sighs> when Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself. Sorry, this is a long passage. Longest one in all of Genesis. Just hang with me. We're, we're getting to the end. Uh, when Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself down to the ground to Adonai. And the servant brought out the jewels of silver and jewels of gold and clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and her mother. Hmm. Um, they ate and drank. And the men who were with him and stayed the night, they rose up in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. And her brother and her mother said, let the young lady stay with us a few days, at least 10. After that, she'll go. <laughs> I love this because this servant, he's charading as somebody else and he's ready to pack up and get out of there. And at last minute, he's stalled. The family stops him. I wonder if they're on to him. Give us another week and a half to figure you out, right? Um, do they discern something seedy about this guy? They ask him to stay 10 days. I wonder if he's getting nervous. Now he's got to keep up the lie for 10 more days. Keep his story straight for 10 more days. <laughs> you ever been there? <laughs> and you ever, you ever encountered a spiritual charlatan, a spiritual counterfeit? Ever been able to see through somebody, someone, right? There's, there's their ruse. Ever had the gift of discernment and you were on to somebody? Or have you ever had to keep up a lie for days and days to keep it going? He said to them, don't hinder me since Adonai has made my way succeed. Just send me away. Like, let me get out of here, right? Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we'll call the young lady and ask it from her mouth. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I'll go. Will you go with this man? I will go. That's a super important question. Not to another man. Will you go with this man? And her response is, I will, like I do, right? It's as if they're already getting married, right? I will go with this man, not to another man, with this man. She still thinks she's going to marry this man. And so they sent away Rebecca, their sister, with her nurse, Abraham's servant, still unnamed, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you be the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and let your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. And Rebekah arose with her ladies, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And so maybe, maybe Rebekah sees this, or Becky sees this as a way out, a new life. Maybe she wants to escape the small town life, the rural life, right? Maybe she envisions herself as never having to go and draw water in the evening again for the camels. Now she gets to live with this rich dude, this uh, bourgeois life, right? And this is her way out of the small town life, her, her ticket out. And so they stroll off into the sunset, sunset together with the blessing of the family, 
all still under a ruse. And the story continues, Isaac came from Ba'ir Lahai Ru'oi, for he lived in the land of the Negev. So Isaac, he's turned, now the story is switching to Isaac. And he's returned to the place, if you remember back in Genesis, where Hagar was first banished to. That's the place. That's interesting. Sarah has died. So did he go back because his mom had died and he wanted to be with his stepmom? Maybe she would be able to care for him. I, I don't know, had she cared for him before, and that's all he really knew. But Isaac is finally introduced back into the story, and we're at the end here. The servant has left, and the entire time he's been acting like Isaac. And watch what happens next. Isaac went lamenting in the field early in the evening. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and sure enough, there were camels coming. Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she got off the camel. And she said to the servant, Who is this man who's walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It's my master. And she took her veil, and she covered herself up. So the way the story frames Isaac's reappearance on the scene is that he's in the field lamenting. You're, if you're holding a paper Bible, your, your text might say strolling or walking or, or something like that. Some say complaining even, but I'm in the mindset, this is right, he's lamenting. He's, he's still grieving the loss of his mom, Sarah. And then while he's out there, he sees camels coming. They're not his camels, they're, they're his dad's camels. It's his dad's servant leading the charge. You notice he doesn't even notice Rebecca. She's not on his radar at this point, but she notices him. And what she does is key. Don't miss it. She does two things. She asks the man who this guy is. And second, as he approaches, she covers her face with a veil and then covers herself, her body. And here's a clue that tells us that she thought she was traveling all this time with her husband-to-be or her husband already. She had unveiled her face while she was riding the whole time. She had uncovered her body to some degree. She was riding along that way, comfortably exposed face and body parts to Abraham's servant, to the man she thought that she was going to be married to. She wouldn't have done that if this was just any old guy. She was comfortable enough around this man to be unveiled. And even though Isaac didn't notice her, just the camels... She notices him, and look at what happens next. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Does this mean that he told Isaac the truth? I mean, about all the deception that he had just pulled. Or that he had lied to Isaac too, and told him that story in a glossed-over manner, given his track record, probably the latter. The servant, without as much as a word to Becky, hands her off to the real Isaac. And she now hears the story in a completely different way. The jig is up. The gig is up. The game is over. And coldly, the servant leaves Rebecca in Isaac's hands, and that's that. The man she thought she was going to marry has betrayed her, and she's left by him. He leaves her. It's the height of betrayal, this moment. The emotional Rube Goldberg machine gets another like wrench thrown into it. It starts breaking down. The servant had deceived. He used language to deceive, wordplay, and he used God to deceive. He tricked the family. He tricked Rebecca, and now he drops her off to Isaac. But his goal is accomplished as far as he's concerned. He can move on. 
And now think, think, friends. I had to, we had to read this whole story today because it sets up the rest of the story. You think about all of the emotional and relational turmoil and fallout that results from this. Think about a marriage starting that way. Essentially, you're kidnapped and trafficked under the guise of thinking this is your husband who had never actually had any intention of being married to you. You arrive and he hands you off. But what's Becky to do now? She's voiceless. She can't speak up. She's been robbed. And she's at the behest of the men in the story. The servant, likely having deceived Isaac, just now rides off, leaving Isaac and Becky with all the problems and the details to sort out themselves. And the chapter ends with this final verse. Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after the death of his mother. 67 verses, all setting up and telling one massive story of betrayal. And it all starts with one lie. And that sets the course of events in motion, this chain reaction, this domino effect. When we re read the rest of Isaac and Rebecca's story, you're going to see it play out. It brings us to our bottom line for the day, which is just never underestimate the enduring damage of one lie. Because that's all it takes. It can ruin a life. It can ruin a relationship. It can ruin a family. It can ruin a church. It can ruin a business. It can ruin a faith. It can bring utter devastation. The fallout can be immense. And as John Wesley said, be sure your sin will find you out. You know, in the, the classic work by Dante, The Inferno, um, he paints this picture of there's nine levels of hellfire or uh, hell, the underworld. The ninth is the last and worst. They get worse as you go deeper and deeper. But it's just before the ninth is the eighth. It's next to worse. The eighth level of hell is the level for liars and deceivers, he says. Its name is our word of the week, malbol. <laughs> That's a great uh, Italian word or Latin word, but um, it's Dante's eighth level of the unrighteous underworld. And it's like this funnel with ditches all in it deep ditches, pits, and over the loudspeakers there in Malbol, 24-7, Billy Ray's achy, breaky heart is playing unendingly, right? Just kidding. But um, even though I don't know that Dante's right about those levels of hell, the idea, his, his description of this specific place in hell for liars and deceivers is startling. And it should make any of us who know about it strive to avoid that sin. If Dante is correct, the servant in this story, Genesis 24, will surely be there in Malibu. We covered a lot today. Um, we had to get a grasp on this story because it sets everything else up that follows. My hope today is that you'll take this bottom line that we just looked at to heart. Never underestimate the enduring damage of one lie. As we say in our house, tell the truth always. And you 
and everyone around you will be better for it. Amen? Amen. Stand and let me bless you. All right, if you would, turn your hands upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you go walking in the truth, living the truth, and telling the truth all. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.